0: Because in some countries, it's culturally very difficult to ask a woman to be a CEO. But frankly, women are very good, maybe because they are probably more responsible in many countries taking care of the the family budget.
1: Hello and welcome to the INSEAD Emerging Markets Podcast, where we interview business leaders and emerging market experts on business innovations, market opportunities, and macro level trends in emerging and frontier market countries. Join us for the next hour to dive deep into the world of emerging markets as we speak with top performers who are successfully investing, working, and living in these markets themselves. I'm here today with Antoine Delaporte. Laporte. He is a successful INSEAD alumnus. He actually has a son who just graduated from INSEAD as well. So big INSEAD family here. Um, Antoine himself is the founder and managing director of Adenia Partners. Since 2002, Adenia has managed four funds, investing mainly in buyouts of medium-sized companies in Africa. They had their fourth fund in 2017 of 230 million euros of capital commitment. And their fifth fund now, they're currently raising for $500 million. They have offices in the Ivory Coast, Ghana madagascar cameroon and mauritius where antoine is based and prior to founding adania antoine was an entrepreneur in madagascar from 1995 to 2002 and a manager at bain prior to that in london and paris so first very interesting background i'd love to learn more about your personal journey post nziad how you ended up being an entrepreneur in madagascar and what led you to starting adania and what led you to private equity in africa
0: Hello, everyone. Thank you, Nick, for your question. I started after INSEAD, you know, a very traditional career in consulting, as many of you, I presume, working at Bain in Paris and London for six years. And then as most of my peers in consulting, I ended up, you know, being uh, lacking. I mean, the sense of my own destiny, and my own decision-making, etc. I wanted to start my own business, so I ended up setting up three companies in Madagascar in the clothing business. Why in Madagascar? Very uh, simply because my wife was born in Madagascar. She's from an Indian origin. She was studying in France. I met her there, and then we thought it was a good move to start three ventures in the clothing business in Madagascar. We did that for six years. And then I sold out my three businesses, made some money. And uh, at that time, we had 2,500 employees. So I realized at that time that I was not a good CEO of a business. Taking 100 decisions per day, was not really my cup of tea. I wanted to have a little bit more of an intellectual content in my business, in my job, and a little bit more analysis at the end of the day. And so uh, I thought that a very good combination between consulting, my first move, and entrepreneurship would be PE. Because, you know, in private equity, basically what you do is that when you own a business, you are a chairman, and. I should confess that I am a much better chairman than a a CEO. I have more passion for vision, for big strategic choices, rather than micro decision all the time. So I am very, very comfortable in my new role when I'm a chairman of a company. Partnering with people, obviously, uh, because you, you need to partner with talented people, skillful people. And the private equity has been really the good combination between consulting and entrepreneurship. So I started at the Enya 20 years ago. As you said, we've raised four funds and we are now raising the fifth one. The good news is that last week we made the first close to this fifth one for $240 million. We are close to make the second closing in a couple of weeks, probably early November, for another $100 million. And, I mean, the uh, expectation is to push it uh, between 400 and 500 So, which is not a big jump from what we, we did in the past. Given that fund four, we, we are not in as many uh, countries as we are now. Today, we are based in seven countries in Africa, from Morocco to Kenya to Cote d'Ivoire, Ghana, South Africa, Madagascar and Mauritius. So obviously, uh, given that the coverage of the continent is now almost full, I would say that we have more opportunities for good acquisitions.
2: That's really amazing to go from being to launching a closing business and now raising PE funds of 400 to 500 million euros. I assume when you started, you weren't raising such large funds. So how did you go from there to where you are now? But how did you raise your first fund? Who did you go to? How much was it? And what was that process like when you first? Started? Oh,
0: you're right. You're right, Nick. In two, when I started uh, Adenia, I had no clue about private equity, frankly. What I wanted is to invest my money, to put my money at work in the region I knew. I started by Mauritius, Madagascar, which was a couple of islands where I knew you could be profitable if you were really hands-on in your business. So what I did was really to get to collect some money from a couple of friends, and we ended up with a tiny ten million euro fund in two or three, which is something you would definitely not start a new P fund with today with that amount of money. But at that time, you know, we were maybe a bit crazy and we wanted to make uh, a few investments and we put a, lot of, uh, a little bit of money from our own in a box, you know, like an investment club, basically. Hmm. And it ended up being quite successful. So we have attracted more money, a couple of... Uh, external investors came so then Funds 2 was 30 37 million euro fund 3 96 Funds 4 as you said 230 and we are now gearing at aiming at at 500 but you know the journey was basically to make one step after another and with a rule which is i think very important in our region in our continent which is to never fail you know reputation is so so important in this region where you have lots of, of small communities we behave like so you know, business villages you cannot fail a in the last 20 years we've done something like 32 investments and none of them has been written off i mean we uh, we have been in two, in two cases out of 32, uh, below cost, uh, we've exited at 0.7 for one point four, 0.4. But out of those two exceptions, where well, it was not full failure, it was always more than one, which is extremely important if you want to keep your bankers, if you want to have your investors carry on investing in your funds, and more importantly, if you want to have. To leave a good reputation so that people can call you, talk to you, partner with you. It's very important that you have a clear sheet.
2: So, what would you attribute your success to then? How do you ensure that you don't fail with your investment?
0: Well, well, uh we we, we have been extremely, extremely strict and rigorous when it comes to analysis, due diligence, and in making. First, analysis. Frankly, I was doing an acquisition 20 years ago. Uh, my my first acquisition was almost nothing. You know, it was something like between one and, and a half and two million euro. But I did the same study I was doing at Bain with a strategic analysis, uh, interviewing competition competitors, understanding the client needs, the client behaviors. Uh, A real strategic analysis before getting into the matter. Number two is the diligence. Due diligence in Africa is much more complex than in other parts of the world. In Africa, you basically, you can't rely on good quality analysis, on good quality statistics and data. And without any data, you know, it's very difficult. So you need to build up your data yourself. I remember having done, uh, when I was acquiring a dairy product company in Madagascar, I ended up redoing the the accounting because we we, we didn't believe that the books were correct. And it was a huge and massive effort for a small investment. But at the end, you ended up avoiding the, the main pitfalls. And number three, it's deal-making, obviously. You need to be very straightforward, very direct, and very honest. For example, when you say to your seller, I intend to buy at X, you don't come uh, six months later with an ultimate offer, a binding offer at X divided by two. You may come with a difference of 10%. But I mean, your word is a word cannot you know attract people with a good price and and then every day you say, oh please I need a discount of two percent etc. So we've we've been quite straight and and and, and square in, in the way we were uh, negotiating with everyone.
2: It seems from your description that deal making and due diligence may require a bit of a different skill set in Africa than in other parts of the world. Was there a learning process for you to become good at that? Or did you know from the beginning how to to handle these sort of tasks in Africa compared to where you might have been previously?
0: I think where, where, where the learning curve comes, it's really to find the good partners. It's not because you are a big four that you are a a good audit firm in Africa. It really depends on the people. Mm. So if you find a good partner somewhere, you need to select them. Uh, Same for lawyers. It's the same for consulting firms. You know, if you have a good lawyer, you'd better have a good experience with him and really do having a deep relationship. With your partners in in uh, with your third party players in the deal is very important. You know, in a couple of countries, for example, I I really don't think I can work with more than one lawyer, maybe two max. So if you don't have this one, because it is already chosen by the other party, you are in big trouble, and this is almost the breakup. Because if you cannot execute your deal with the best guys, sometimes, I would say, in a few countries, you would not do it. Obviously, in bigger countries, in Kenya, in Morocco, in South Africa, obviously, you, you have more choices, you have more talents. But, you know, in many countries, in Africa, you don't have good, good, good professional services. You know, finding... I just started that at Bain as a consultant. I, I can tell you that uh, you don't have many Bainese on the continent. And so we have been working in Kenya recently with BCG. It was okay. But there are very few countries where you can find a good consultant. So basically what I want to say is that the first thing in deal making is about finding the right partners with whom you can team up number 2 it's probably that when you have you have done that i think the you you need to figure out how you will make your conviction and your conviction is not done through an accounting and tax due diligence a financial and tax due diligence can help you understanding better the, the context of the figures uh, basically the the environment in which you work the working capital uh, cycle etc but it doesn't give you it doesn't provide you the conviction you need so to do that you need to do it yourself you need to dig into it by yourself so visit Stores, when it comes to a retailer, discuss with, uh, with clients when you can discuss with people. And more important than all, try to find a couple of guys who are the experts of the sector in this particular country or region. The guy may be a, a former you know, CEO, a former owner of a business, and he may be retiree, but he has the uh, good questions in mind. So he helps you a lot. So beyond the classical big four, big law firm you can hire, you need experts, a couple of experts who can help you. And here, I think that you have interesting uh, expert networks in in the world. You know, we use GLG, but you have a couple of others. and, And they are very helpful, frankly, very helpful. When you are in a remote country, you know, we are looking at a business in, let's say, Ghana. It's not a huge country, Ghana. You don't have a lot of expertise there. And if you can find in the business you are looking at, which is insurance business, for example, to give you an example, you'd better work with someone who knows what it is and uh, what it relates to. And obviously, if you can tell him, I would be so happy to partner with you in the deal making, but also in the monitoring, because I would like you to be a director on the board. And why not investing your own money, some of your own money in the business, and et cetera? I mean, uh, partnering with those guys is very key. So basically, you know, private equity is really not a business you do. In isolation, you are not the only one in the world to to try to figure out what, what, it, what this sector, what this business means. And the idea is really to find the relevant, appropriate expertise everywhere and on the ground, on the continent, but also internationally.
2: Sure. What's your investment approach? Are you doing turnarounds or is it growth strategy?
0: No, we are extremely lazy. Sorry, Nick. We are buying good businesses. So we prefer to buy either the the top guy in a sector, in a country, or maybe number two, if he has a chance to. We prefer to buy not at cheap price, quite expensive, but good businesses, I think that a turnaround business in in Africa is really difficult, very difficult. So I will not go there. so obviously, you have other interesting segments you know in the investment in Africa you have in the last few years v c has grown incredibly it's not my world. I prefer the businesses with some track record, who have already some reputation, who have a brand, or who have a good set of people. I will tell you something. We've bought, for example, a packaging business, and we are making carton boards. Carton boards all over the world, it's the most commoditized business you can imagine, carton boards. Although in a small country like Madagascar, where we we have built this company, we did a 3x in four years. Why? Because we were the leader. And if there was another player starting to, to grow and very aggressive and pushing to get market share, they were not good at making cartons. Having a factory which works well, is something which is not obvious in such a country. So we need to to be relatively smart to understand what makes a difference, because the edge you can find in Africa is quite different than what what you can find in the US or in Europe. I would say that I would never, I've been surprised myself. I, I didn't know that. Having a good factory with a loss factor, the loss for paperboard business, the key ratio is your loss of paper. And given that you buy 50% of your turnover, it's a purchase of paper. So you need to reduce your loss ratio. And we ended up at something like at 8%, but we started at 15%. And obviously the seven percent you say it's bottom line. Okay. So it makes a huge difference, huge difference. So the guy who starts in this business, he will start at probably 20% because he doesn't know how to do. Mm-hmm. And even, even if he, he is an expert, you know, his workers need to learn, and you have a learning curve which is not that quick, which is not that quick. So I have realized that in Africa, in many, uh, I would say, uh, unsophisticated businesses, being a leader with good people, good management makes a huge difference.
2: Sure. Yeah, that's really interesting. You mentioned that you're not in VC, but it seems in Africa, in PE, you can make some pretty impressive returns. Maybe you could talk a bit more about the benefits of being involved in PE in Africa versus other parts of the world and some other examples of exciting companies that you've worked with.
0: Well, obviously, when you invest in Africa, where, I mean, the basis basically is very low, but the potential for growth is huge. You dream of growth stories. So basically, it is what we are hunting for our companies' targets where there is potential for growth. I'll tell you an example. We bought a small retail chain in Kenya. It was number eight or number nine, I think, in the retail chains in Kenya, a company called Sokoni. We merged it. After one year, we bought a second company called QuickMart. We merged them. So together, we had nine plus six, 15 stores. It was in 2020, Jan 2020, the merger. We've acquired the first company in October 2018 and the second one in November 2019. In January 2020, we did a merger of the company, of the retail chains with 15 companies one product catalog you know a big thing to harmonize obviously and fighting with all suppliers so that they reduce the prices given that we gain volume and it was a huge success today we have 55 stores and excellent ebitda margin So in less than three years, going from 15 stores to 55 is quite some sort of of growth you can find in Africa, which is not that easy to find in other parts of the world, except tech, obviously. But tech is another story. But in the traditional businesses, uh, you can find incredible, incredible growth stories. Another example, which is fascinating, because we did the the investment very recently it was in in february 2021 and <clears> or <throat> oh, march march 2021 it's a it's a distributor of electrical equipment in south africa and we were in secondary cities bloemfontein george we had uh, four stores and selling basically electrical equipment to contractors not really the average consumer but contractors and we've added i mean this they have started before we came frankly to add a line of solar equipment not only panels which are a little bit of a commodity thing but more inverters batteries etc and we have been attracted by this one by this business which was a small part of the business when we cried it 18 months ago it was something like 20%. And today it's more than 80%. And the, camp- the company turnover, uh, the last figure I have is September, was almost 10 times what it used to be 18 months ago. And just driven by the the incredible need that this country has for solar energy, you know, that electrical situation is incredible in South Africa, in such a big country, in many, many parts, you have something like up to five hours per day of power cuts. So, I mean, it's just impossible to live like that. And people are struggling to find alternatives. Uh, So this is a real moment to be there. And obviously, we have been interested to get and to acquire this business because they had very interesting brands of inventors and batteries. So panels, once again, anyone can sell a panel. Mm. But when it comes to more technical issues, and obviously you, you also provide a lot of support to installers and you end up with providing a lot of service. And so our business is now more service-oriented than only product. And the growth is absolutely phenomenal. So it happens. It happens.
2: Sure. It's really interesting that not only does it sound like a great business, but the situation there in South Africa enabled this. Do you look into like how how big are macro factors in the countries that you look into? And are there specific countries that you're most interested in in, in Africa?
0: Well, you know, Nick, it's a question where I am less comfortable. Mm. <laughs> Very often I am asked, you know, when I go to a private equity conference, or what is your country of preference? And frankly, it's very difficult because the the only thing you don't know in Africa is where the new storm will be coming. And it can go everywhere. There has been a very good election in in Kenya two months ago. It could have been a nightmare Mm. because the difference of votes between the two contenders was extremely low, less than one percent. So what has happened in the US five years ago at the presidential election, but when it comes in Kenya, you can have a revolution and a war in the street very easily. So so the matter is serious. And in fact it went very, very well. But let, let's be very modest. There will be earthquakes somewhere and we don't know where. Mm. So don't pick a country to concentrate your investment. The only way to uh, mitigate the risk is really to have a continental approach to work in many countries because, uh, frankly, you can't say that one country is protected from any difficulty. It can happen. And so I don't want to escape your question, but I just want to to be very modest in my reply to say that uh, we don't know the future. And the only thing we we do is really looking business by business, company by company, uh, having a very micro study analysis and more than a macro type of reasoning. Having said that, obviously, Kenya is an interesting country. Morocco is an interesting country. You have countries where you do have a certain level of industrial history, track record, and business. Attitude, uh, which is the case in Kenya and Morocco, for example. You, you have also, obviously, a good tradition of business and, and in South Africa. But South Africa is a tough country with lots of political risk, etc. So once again, one of our star in our portfolio today is a South African company. Who had could have guessed that? Because when you look at the media and all the the experts talking on Africa, they would say that South Africa has to be avoided. But still, it's our best. It's our star in our portfolio today. So let's be modest. Look at the real business model, company by company. You can be in a very, I was mentioning earlier, the case of Madagascar. Madagascar is probably one of the poorest country in the world, probably one of the, of the last country where you want to invest. But still... We did a lot of very good investment.
2: Great answer. It's very interesting. I think it's not always as straightforward as you think when you read about Rwanda, for example, or Botswana. These are supposedly the countries in Africa that are good for doing business, but that maybe ignores the opportunities that may be there in other countries. So... Yeah, it's quite interesting. I've noticed on your website, there's a lot of attention paid to sustainability and impact. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that, why impact is important to you and how that dovetails with the way that you do business in Africa.
0: Yes, yes, yes. That's a difficult question because it's very counterintuitive. You would say that in Africa, you can't pay the luxury ESG strategy and I think the the truth is that it's exactly the contrary. It's because you have so many risks of reputational risk, financial risk, that you need to be extremely rigorous to implement a very, very strong ESG policy. Let's take an example, you know. Otherwise, it's a bit theoretical. Everyone knows that in Africa, corruption is very high, and it's very difficult to avoid being in the trap. And obviously, Nick, you know that given our investor base, the World Bank, many international institutions, if we were trapped in a corruption case, Adenia would be over. I mean, that would be finished. So it just, it's just impossible. It's not an ethical issue only. It's also that it's just absolutely impossible for us to be, uh, to have two books of accounts like many companies in Africa. It's just impossible. So compliance for us, it has a very high level. So obviously it has consequences. Number one, we can't work with public companies. We can't, when I I say work, I mean, if we have, for example, a target in the construction sector and the construction company works at 50% for municipalities, cities, and the government bodies, we would say no. Uh, It's just impossible. You can't do that. So we can't Work with public entities. We can't work in businesses where we have a license, for example, which is dependent on one government. Just impossible. You can't do that. So we have limited ourselves to a universe of deals that we can manage. Where, let's say, I'm not naive. I would not say they are they are corruption free, but at least we limit the risk. And then obviously, you are extremely, extremely rigorous in implementing policies inside the company to infuse this idea that corruption is a no-go. So that's a a first example. Number two is obviously, when I get back to this example of the paperboard company in Madagascar, a very, very poor country, And obviously, as you know, people company uses a lot of ink. And where we started in this business, the river aside the factory was blue from ink. So we decided to, to build a full water treatment plant. And at first time, at first shot, you could say it's costly. It's expensive. And you don't need it. Because basically what the, the people do is they give a small envelope to the, the inspector and that's done. They can put all the rubbish in the river. But our goal is to sell our businesses to multinational companies, to large businesses. And you can do, you cannot do that anymore. So that's, that's, if you want to have a sellable business at a decent multiple, you need to have a clean business today. It's just impossible to sell. You know, we have been selling a paint company to Axo Nobel, one of the leading worldwide paint company listed in Amsterdam. And obviously, they did their environment due diligence. If we were not clean, they would never have bought 10 times. And this business, we have bought it seven times. So maybe the extra mile that you gain in multiple is from having a low standard company and a high standard company. High standard meaning proper environment policy uh, good social practices, high standard of governance. Those are key issues. And frankly, you can make money in Africa if you are serious about all those things.
2: Yeah, I think that that is an interesting look at it that way. and It makes a lot of sense. The second part to impact I was wondering is how does engaging with the local communities help your approach or is that something that you think about as well?
0: Yes, yes, obviously, we have all a methodology to measure our impact on the communities and the countries in which we invest. There are two dimensions: number one, I would tell you, you know when you invest a penny in Africa, it's already a huge impact so I am today impact means a lot of things and I would not to criticize what people do in other regions, but it is true that if you have a business of a sushi restaurant business in California, and it is owned by a woman, it's a high impact investment for any PE firm. While my view is that if it had to be in Africa, the impact would be much more. So, I think that investing in Africa has already a huge impact. So, yes, number two, second dimension, I agree, we need to be serious about what we do because you have also dirty businesses. You also have, you can be bad for the climate or not improving your standard of ESG. So, you need to measure. And since we measure, we feel like it's much more difficult because progress are, are difficult to get. Let's say, once again, it's not the, the carbon emission which matters. It's the carbon emission intensity. Because obviously, when we, you you come, let's take the example of Kenya, from 1515 stores to 55, obviously you have more carbon emission. But your business is almost four times bigger. So we need to be sure that we use the the good criteria to measure that. And I think that Adenia has done a tremendous progress to measure it. And today we are working, installing solar energy equipment on the roof of all our stores. It's a massive investment. So we will do partly this year in, in a couple of years. We we are planning that. It's a fascinating project, which is extremely impactful. And I hope that it will create value, frankly, because definitely it will save money in the longer term in terms of energy. It's very good for the climate and it should give value to the business. So we are definitely, definitely aiming at improving our businesses on this standard of impact. And we have a strong commitment with our investors in terms of carbon emission intensity reduction, as well as gender. In terms of gender, Adenia has been appointed as an ex. There is an international standard, and we have a premium card in this gender issue. I think the gender subject is a very interesting one in Africa, because in some countries, it's culturally very difficult to ask a woman to be a CEO, but frankly, women are very good, very good. Maybe because they are probably more responsible in many countries, taking care of the family, basically, of the family budget, I mean. So they are probably better than men in many instances. So the gender strategy is a very interesting one because you need to push walls, but it's rewarding. It's rewarding.
2: Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. So yes, we're running a bit short of time. So I just have one last question for you. What advice would you give to NCS students or NCS alumni who are interested in entrepreneurship or private equity in emerging markets or frontier market based on your experience what would you say to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps
0: well well nick absolutely no doubt i would definitely encourage to go in emerging market i mean you can really have a huge impact in the world you are really game changer i mean I don't criticize. I mean, those people like you working in the US or in Europe, but frankly, at the end of the day, you you make tiny differences. In Africa, you can still shape the world the way you want. I mean, it's amazing the impact that we can have in Africa because so much remains to be done. And you know, the culture, for example, is something that we are shaping. When when I tell you about the gender issue. I can tell you that in a couple of big businesses, when we acquire them, we do a gender audit, and sometimes it's so obvious that at the recruitment office, the people blocks women mm-hmm. just for stupid ideas, yeah, you know, pregnancy, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All the the same stories, and they forget absolutely that having a mix of men and women. Always drive better decision making. So you need to figure out how to go there, but you can shape what you want because, as the majority owner of a company, you can drive your strategy. So you push people, you change a couple of guys who are too reluctant to change, but you make change happen. And this is fascinating. This is, frankly, when you are looking at a business with purpose, Africa is the place to be.
1: Thank you for joining us for this episode of the NCAD Emerging Markets Podcast. To stay up to date on events we may be hosting, emerging market news, and to build your personal network, please feel free to join the NCAD Alumni Emerging Markets Interest Group on LinkedIn.